Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's exciting webinar. I am Tim Stark and the host of today's exciting event. I'm a professor of civil engineering at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and technical director for the Fabricated Geomembrane Institute. This is our 12th webinar of 2020, and the remaining three webinars for 2020 have already been scheduled with great speakers and timely topics, which are available on the FGI website. And the next two webinars are on the last slide today. During today's webinar, we welcome questions and comments, which can be typed into the questions box in the control panel. You may send in your questions at any time during the presentation, and our speakers will address them at the end of today's presentation. The recording of this webinar and a PDF of all the slides will be made available on the FGI website after today's presentation. PDH certificates will be sent automatically to all who attend the entire webinar. Okay, today our webinar speakers are Harold D. Register Jr., commonly known as JR Register of Consumer Energy in Jackson, Michigan, and Andy Bittner of Gradient in Boston, Massachusetts. JR is a principal engineer with Consumers Energy and has over 20 years of experience in the solid and hazardous waste management and remediation fields. JR participates in state and federal policy and rule development for waste management and remediation issues. Andy Bittner is a principal with Gradient and a licensed environmental engineer with over 20 years of experience specializing in the fate and transport of contaminants in the environment, groundwater, and surface water. It is great that both JR and Andy have been able to squeeze this into their busy schedules to give our October 2020 webinar titled, U.S. EPA Reconsiders CCR Regulations Impacting the Geosynthetics Industry. JR and Andy, thanks so much for joining us again. And JR, you've got control. Thank you. And good day, everybody. Um, Andy and I are thank FGI for inviting us back to talk to this group about rulemaking changes that have been happening with US EPA. Uh, previously, we uh, both had participated and discussed um, a number of different changes happening within the rulemaking because there are a lot of rules that are changing when it comes to coal combustion residuals or CCRs. And a number of those um, changes do have an impact on the geosynthetics industry. So we're looking to build from our previous presentation. And what I would like to do, at least starting off, is to take a moment and just frame where the rulemaking is at, um, just summarize what we've previously discussed and then put it in context moving forward as we look at 2020. And, and before I start my uh, presentation, some of you might have noticed Andy and I are, are wearing the same shirt. That was purely coincidental. We did not coordinate that before the start of this uh, presentation. So um, that's uh, we've been working a lot together. So it's obviously showing in our choice of uh, fashion wear. So with this um, federal CCR rulemaking timeline, um, if we look earlier than 2020, the the last 10 years before 2020. What we see is um, a, a progress of, of change and of how the rule came to its current configuration. So in 2010, there was a draft federal rule. That's the first time that uh, codes were published talking to what standards might be applied to 
coal combustion residual landfills or surface impoundments. You'll note that in 2015, that's when the final rule was promulgated. And what's interesting, since the time that the final rule was promulgated, there were a number of administrative challenges that were brought. And the, through that administrative process and what you see in this timeline are elements of administration. So you see a settlement agreement in 2016 that settled some of the early issues that could be. You see in 2016, and I wanna emphasize that point, is that we have um, actually legislation taken up by the um, by Congress, signed by uh, President Obama, WIN Act, which is the Water uh, Improvements Infrastructure for the Nations Act, actually a, uh, a budgetary bill, but in this particular case, it contained components that allowed for, um, an, amongst a number of things, it allowed EPA to uh, delegate programs to states, allow states to obtain authorization to enforce and uh, issue permits, but it also provided for some ability to have flexibility in how states and or the federal government um, administered that. So uh, WIN Act was a very important component uh, of legislation um, supplemental to the federal rule. What we then see coming later in time is that EPA was moving forward to, uh, to promulgate rules to address in part WIN Act and also in part to address ongoing litigation. And where we ultimately end up at is um, we have um, an initial final rule that was issued, the phase one part one rule in 2018. And then we have um, kind of a, uh, a logical, and I've shown it on here, it's, it's a, a figurative and literal uh, bifurcation of uh, what's called the USWAG decision. And this is where the, um, the uh, Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia actually rendered a decision and um, you know that decision was consequential to some, how some of the standards in the federal rule are applied especially relative to uh, how geosynthetics might be used so when we look at the rule as promulgated in 2015 um, there's a lot of standards in there many people who work with landfills will recognize uh, common parallels there are uh, standards for design standards for operation standards for siting these facilities, uh, standards for groundwater monitoring, corrective action, uh, closure, post-closure, and um, also for records management. And in, uh, unique to the CCR world is a public-facing website that keeps track of all these types of uh, documents and certifications that are necessary. The element that um, Andy and I will be focusing on today has to do with liner requirements. And uh, as you can see from the way that it was laid out, um, landfill liners or liners in general, whether it's a landfill or a surface impoundment, um, looked back into the, um, the, the RICRA rule and, and drew upon experience and other standards that were out there. And you'll recognize uh, how those components are put together. The one element I draw your attention to is that from the time that the rule was published to the time that it was final, there was a compacted clay, uh, an additional liner standard of compacted clay of um, at least two feet that was added to the final rule. And that applied to existing surface impoundments and new landfills. Existing surface impoundments and new landfills would be relative to the time that the final rule was effective, which was October of 2015. We're actually coming up on that, uh, that I call it RICRA day. It's uh, five years since the effective day has, um, has passed on us. So it's, uh, it's interesting that that's the part of the timeline that we're in. When we look at new surface impoundments, the idea is that 
with a new unit, there should be upgraded standards. And so what we see is a composite bottom liner system that's required. And what ended up coming uh, into place with the final rule, because a number of commenters um, had said that, you know, liner systems aren't only defined by the, the way that the um, upper and lower components were uh, described in the CCR uh, federal rule, uh, and, uh, the concept of alternative composite liner was added in the final rule. And that's really an important concept because it, it demonstrates that EPA was able to reconsider the rule in a way that the statutory performance standard, which speaks to no reasonable probability of adverse effects on health or the environment from the disposal of solid waste, that EPA was able to go back and based on technology and comparisons, were able to make that determination. And you're going to see how that concept plays into the current rulemaking um, status. So the, the question is, what is driving new regulations as we look uh, now? And I mentioned the USWAG decision. So the DC court was listening and hearing arguments provided by uh, both industry and by the um, environmental petitioners. And uh, there was a lot of um, uh, debate and a lot of um, arguments that were uh, presented that were elements of concern with the rule. So as um, EPA, as I mentioned, was moving forward with rulemaking and in fact had promulgated a rule, the, the, the court actually at that time, um, they, they heard arguments as to whether or not um, litigation should be put on hold. And the court actually came back and said, well, no, we're, we're going to deny the idea that you should put this on hold. So the legal term is um, hold the case in abeyance. And the court also, in addition to, rendered a decision on the remaining points of litigation as was presented in the oral arguments. And the, important, the importance of the way that this information and the way that the decision came out was that the court was asked to look at the record evidence. They were asked to look at natural damage cases and they were asked to look at the EPA risk assessment. And based on the documentation presented, the court's opinion spoke that um, there, there was a couple of fundamental things that came out of that. Uh, one was the court found that there was um, an actual, um, in terms of clay liners, the record suggested that a clay-only lined system or clay-only lined impoundment uh, was likely to have contamination and that the manner of uh, monitoring for that contamination didn't allow, or at least there wasn't a there, there wasn't a in, a period between when those types of units were in service versus when the detection of that contamination was presented, that the underlying federal standard could be uh, met, which is no um, impact based on the act of disposing of the solid waste. So one of the outcomes was uh, uh, clay liners were removed as a component of being a liner system. The other piece that the court found was that the operation of unlined surface impoundments presented a, uh, a, a direct impact to human health and the environment. And so the court looked at that record of evidence and said, first of all, we're gonna say unlined surface impoundments are gonna to need to close because there's not a standard that allows you to operate them and not um, impact the underlying legal standard. But then the second component was, clay liners alone, so uh, this would be a liner that doesn't have a, a geomembrane or any other type of synthetic associated with it, clay alone was not going to be able to provide that type of protection 
that was out there. So this happened in 20 at the end of 2018. And so EPA has gone back and they've reconsidered and they've looked at how they're going to address the court's opinion. And they've also looked at how that integrates with other elements of the rulemaking that was out there. So when we look at 2020 and we say, what's new? The regulatory agenda is busy. So as you can see, this is a single slide only for 2020. We see just as much activity in, time, in terms of milestones as we've seen almost for the last 10 years in terms of elements of administratively where rules have, um, have ended up at. So in the regulatory agenda for 2020, there's four elements I wanna update, um, update on as part of this presentation. One is the holistic approach to closure part A. So this is um, one that where the, uh, the court actually spent, where EPA spent the time addressing directly the court's issues. Holistic approach to closure part B, which will be the focus of additional technical material uh, presented by Andy, will be, um, is where, the, where EPA has tried to provide some balances against what the presumption of closure looks like and to aid and facilitate in what uh, a safe closure looks like for surface impoundments. The last two um, are worth uh, mentioning because they do intersect uh, where we're at on this timeline. One is legacy impoundments. Uh, we'll, we'll have a couple of um, summary discussions about that. And the last one is the federal CCR permit program. This one is more of an umbrella concept because EPA uh, is looking to directly enforce uh, the standards rather than being in a self-implementing rule, which was originally uh, proposed. What EPA is actually looking to do is to permit and that permit program could be administered by a state, but they're looking at uh, developing the underlying standards as if it were going to be administered by EPA and putting in components like, uh, you know, what the application looks like, what um, public participation looks like, things that are, are consistent with other types of applications that are out there for EPA. So the, the most um, impactful component of, of the rulemaking for EPA uh, currently in 2020 is what's happening within this, uh, what we call the Part A final rule, the holistic approach to closure. So what uh, EPA has done is they've laid out a timeline consistent with the court's uh, opinion as to when uh, closure for unlined surface impoundments must happen. And that's um, that final date is April 11th, 2021. Uh, EPA also recognized that there were circumstances under which um, alternative closure or at least um, measures under which that the uh, owners operators were incentivized to either find alternate capacity. So the transitional time from going from forced to transition, um, the risk managed component of that, uh, that was one uh, element of it. And the other is whether uh, was the circumstance under which owners and operators committed to permanently ceasing the operation of the coal-fired uh, boiler. So uh, demonstrations for these alternative closures um, have to be submitted by November 30th of 2020. So just literally around the corner for us. When we look at the final closure dates then um, that are extended by virtue of those demonstrations, the, uh, the final potential dates are, um, if there's a request to extend um, the operation of an online CCR uh, surface impoundment, the capacity, the idea of developing capacity, the final closure date for that's October 15th of 2023. You'll note that I have a footnote there and that's relative to 
Um, in some very limited circumstances, there were some units that may qualify up to October uh, 15th of 2024, but that's very limited in nature. Um, the real, um, I think, uh, notable one, and it's consistent with some of the findings uh, previous from EPA uh, record, was that um, if the coal-fired boiler were to permanently cease, what that extension looked like, and they predicated the size of the impoundment um, as the basis for when those units would have to close. So the final closure for um, less than 40 acres is um, October 17th of 2023, and uh, if it's larger than 40 acres, October 17th of 2028. And what's really interesting in the development of these dates is that EPA used the record of information that was provided to them during the notice and comment period. Um, a number of um, individuals, owners and operators came in and they provided things like uh, Gantt charts, sequence of construction, considerations that would have to be um, uh, put into place as you're uh, transitioning from the online surface impoundment to the modern day one. And those things were not only influential in uh, providing these dates that are out there, but also were very critical for EPA to, to demonstrate the balance and how, uh, how EPA was balancing uh, the needs of um, operating and maintaining these units versus when the final closure date needed to be uh, implemented per the court decision. <clears throat> Excuse me. When we go to permit programs and legacy impoundments, what we have, and just really quickly summarizing, the federal permit program is looking at a, a three-tiered system of permit options. There are individual permits, which would be based on site-specific issues, and there would be two other classes of permits that would be categorical in nature, where if there are common elements that apply to a broad number of uh, units, they would just try to make those as uh, permit by rule or um, uh, or just a, a, a minor type of permit that would cover those where there weren't any site-specific considerations. So um, EPA at this point has put out a public notice and they're still, at, as far as the regulatory agenda is concerned, they um, are speaking about December being that date for when that's gonna come out. With legacy impoundments, what's really interesting is we have what's called an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. And so this is distinct from a notice of proposed rulemaking because what EPA is really doing with this type of notice is they're asking the all stakeholders what information do they have that helps to influence or helps EPA put together a rulemaking around the, um, the concept of uh, what's been called legacy CCR surface impoundments. And, and, and for those of, uh, of you who uh, aren't as familiar with the surface impoundment development, um, the federal rule regulated surface impoundments from 2015 moving forward. And there were some exemptions that were um, crafted based on earlier uh, impoundments and whether they were inactive and whether they were at active sites of generation. And so the, the federal court decision recognized that um, surface impoundments of earlier vintages were like just as likely to have this, the, the same types of risks as uh, surface impoundments that are either retrofitted or currently operating. And so there was um, there, there was a, a decision to push forward and at least have EPA consider what that might look like. So that's really what this um, advanced notice of proposed rulemaking that has not actually, it's a pre-publication came out um, just a week ago and we would expect a, um, 
a final uh, publication in the Federal Register within a couple of weeks is usually the time that's out there for it. So really there's uh, definitions based on three different date options. EPA is asking about the size of the universe of these types of units and they're also asking about what types of standards should be applied. So this brings me to really um, the focus of, of today's um, updates is the idea of the holistic approach to closure part B. And this was an idea that um, Andy and I shared um, in the previous presentation where um, clay lined uh, units or at least units that didn't meet the single composite standard as defined in the federal rule, you know, were there ways for those types of systems to still be protective and to meet the underlying standard despite what the record of, of information that was presented to the circuit court uh, showed. And so um, this idea, and this was put out for um, draft publication and comment uh, timeline, we unfortunately don't have a, a rule that's out yet, though um, there's been some uh, discussion that that rule is pending. Uh, the alternate liner system demonstration is what EPA came up with. And really the idea here is, are, are there ways to build a record to demonstrate that the properties of liners that don't meet the definition of the federal rule, are there ways to demonstrate that those liners in fact can be as protective? And so um, the EPA took um, what was called a lines of evidence approach and said, well, focus on um, how do you demonstrate the characterization of the site hydrology supports that, um, and also document um, what the potential for infiltration is, since that is, since the technology is effectively trying to manage those two characteristics. Two other elements of, of this rulemaking are um, an additional closure by removal standard, which is interesting because the current closure by removal standard necessitates meeting groundwater protection standard at the time of certification. And so the idea is that EPA believes that there's a second option uh, to still incentivize the closure by removal so that closure by removal or removal of that CCR would still be achieved and would allow for certification of that removal, even in cases where there was still some groundwater residual left over. And so there was some um, information and some standards around that. And the last one here is um, coal combustion residuals that are used in the forced closure of surface impoundments. And this one is interesting just because there are a number of individuals in the industry that as um, these impoundments um, need to close and grades need to be constructed to um, construct these final covers or um, other um, structural components that are associated with these covers need to be uh, addressed and there's a need for material to address that. CCR has um, been used in some cases to create these grades or to, sub uh, uh, to, um, to uh, improve the subgrade bearing capacity or um, to provide other elements um, that would otherwise not be available or would not uh, be timely. Uh, in terms of those closures. And so um, EPA also included some standards and some considerations for the um, use of CCR enforced closure. Um, so those are the elements that are in the Part B rule. And coming up to this idea of the uh, liner system demonstration, when individuals provided information um, to EPA during the rulemaking period, what, um, what really kind of um, came down as a basis to uh, to look at risk on a technology comparison basis. When we look at the idea of a single composite liner, 
um, and I've adapted this from uh, Benson and Daniel from 1990. Uh, what you have is the idea that what that if you have a geomembrane of a certain thickness and you have um, a few different lifts of compacted clay soil, and if you look at how a water uh, droplet or water droplets plural are able to enter the system, um, you the, the single composite standard tries to make the best, it tries to emphasize the benefits of both while minimizing the risk to each. And so with the geomembrane, it's the idea of having an imperfection or a, a hole that's um, part of that that would be present post-construction. Uh, and with the clay, it's a matter of having um, enough layers that as they are um, compacted and, and brought, uh, as they're compacted and, and uh, the certified, that as that droplet uh, moves through the, um, the subsurface, that um, it doesn't just have a preferential pathway. And so this uh, work in 1990 really emphasized that um, optimizing the type of geosynthetic that's needed and the manner in which the clay would be compacted, placed, and certified there was um, a technology standard that's been um, achieved by doing that. And so we've got um, composite over clay that, um, that manages that infiltration potential as well as um, reduction in uh, potential uh, hydraulic conductivity uh, once, if and when a uh, particle of water, water droplets are able to, um, to make it that far. So when, CCR units were looked at and a single composite technology standard wasn't present. Three generalized scenarios came out of um, that discussion where these units have been operating for some time and there were no apparent groundwater impacts and there was sufficient information to suggest that the manner in which these units were constructed would in fact be protective. So one of those scenarios was um, the idea of if you had a geomembrane that was less than 60 mils of uh, HDPE, so not meeting that HDPE standard, and you had soil that was um, of a thickness that was consistent with two feet of compacted clay, was there a way to go back and demonstrate that um, the, the combination of the geomembrane that was used and the soil that was certified at the time uh, was protective? And so there was, uh, you know, there, there was that scenario that was conceived. A second generalized scenario was that if there's no geomembrane, so no geosynthetic available, and that you had hydraulic conductivity that was um, substantially less than the one times 10 to the minus seven standard, but that you had soil that was maybe um, not two feet thick, but maybe it was between 10 and 100 feet thick. So on an order of magnitude greater than what the um, federal standard provided, um, you know that, that was an area where there was um, some benefits that we thought that could be reviewed. And then the third was um, a, a, a scenario where there's still no geomembrane. Uh, you have a hydraulic conductivity that mirrors the federal standard, but what happens when the soil is substantially greater than the federal standard? So getting to like the idea of two orders of magnitude, since these measured parameters are log normally distributed. So thinking about what happens if you substantially increase one or both of the parameters. And so that led to the idea of EPRI putting together case studies and individuals looking at how that would impact um, the, the overall evaluation. And so that brings us to what actually happened going from our previous insane in the geomembrane to um, some type of sanity. So 
I'll turn it over to Andy and ask him to run us this now. All right, thanks, JR. Uh, and I just want to take a minute before I get started here to uh, to thank the Fabricated Geomembrane Institute for, for having us back. Um, as JR mentioned, uh, he and I gave a presentation to this forum back in August of 2019. And I just want to briefly revisit uh, that uh, August 2019 presentation. Uh, it was somewhat whimsically titled Insane in the Geomembrane. And this was meant to reflect on the insanity that there can be some bottom liner systems that are regulated differently under the federal CCR rules, even if they achieve the same level of protection to human health and the environment. Uh, now, in that August 2019 presentation, uh, I presented the results of the study that we conducted modeling the, uh, the performance of various bottom liner systems at coal ash surface impoundments. I'm not gonna rehash all of the information that was previously presented, but I do wanna highlight a couple of things. Uh, as JR mentioned, this was a project that was funded by the Electrical Power Research Institute. Uh, and for it, we modeled the impacts to groundwater for a range of bottom liner scenarios at coal ash surface impoundments. Uh, it was a probabilistic modeling approach uh, so we evaluated concentrations for a range of different conditions reflecting the differences in uh, operational criteria, uh, soil, and hydrogeological characteristics. Uh, now this list is at the bottom is not a full list of the bottom liners that we evaluated as part of this study, uh, but it does provide a, a, a sampling of the type of scenarios that we considered. Uh, and it includes unlined impoundments, uh, clay-lined impoundments, uh, naturally clay-lined systems, uh, and a range of geomembrane, uh, geocomposite-lined impoundments. Uh, and now this figure in the, in the bottom left uh, presents a schematic illustrating how the service impoundment systems uh, were set up in the model and how the, and how the model was uh, was used to simulate the phaeton transport through the liners into the underlying groundwater. Uh, this is the specific schematic uh, that I'm showing for the composite-lined uh, impoundment scenario. Uh, next slide, Chair. Now, again, in this presentation, uh, I'm not going to go into all of the specifics, uh, but the ultimate conclusion of this study um, that was conducted last year was that there are some alternative bottom liner, bottom liner systems, even those that don't meet the current federal CCR bottom liner standards that can perform similarly to liners that do meet the federal standards and thus can be protective of human health and the environment. Uh, now, just to clarify, as, as JR presented a, a few slides ago, a bottom liner that meets the federal standards has a 30 mil thick geomembrane and two feet of compacted soil with a hydraulic conductivity of less than or equal to 10 to the minus seven centimeters per second. Any bottom liner, bottom liner system that deviates from this, be it the thickness of the geomembrane or the thickness or the conductivity of the underlying soil layer, is considered unlined based on the current federal CCR rules and subject to all the requirements of unlined impoundments, uh, including closure. So this plot shows the example modeling results uh, from our study for lithium. Uh, 
Uh, now the composite bottom liner in this in this plot is the blue line, uh, and you can see that at the 90th percentile, uh, which is the standard that was used by EPA to determine what's protective of human health and the environment, uh, the downgradient groundwater concentrations associated with the composite liner are well below the groundwater protection standards. Uh, on this chart, the groundwater protection standard is indicated by the dashed black horizontal line. Uh, in fact, all of the various geomembrane composite bottom liner systems that we modeled performed very well, uh, even if they did not meet the federal liner standards. Uh, so this includes liners um, that may not meet the geomembrane thickness requirements, uh, that may not meet the underlying uh, soil liner requirements. Um, and we also evaluated membranes with high and low defect frequencies, uh, you know, potentially resulting from installation uh, or wear. Uh, so all of the geomembrane composites performed very well in this, in this modeling study. Uh, it's also worth pointing out here that the natural clay-lined scenarios that we simulated, uh, which are the pink lines, also performed very well. Uh, at EPA's 90th percentile value, uh, concentrations for these natural clay line scenarios are also below the groundwater protection standards. All right, so we move on to the next slide. All right, so with that background, I want to transfer into what has happened since our prior presentation in August of, of 2019. <laughs> Uh, the EPRI uh, study, uh, the white paper that I just discussed, uh, presenting the probabilistic bottom liner modeling analyses, was submitted to EPA in 2019 in advance of expected rulemaking. Um, subsequently, in March of 2020, as JR mentioned, US EPA published its proposed Part B holistic approach to closure. Now the proposed rule uh, would create a process by which owners of a surface impoundment with a bottom liner system that is considered unlined based on current federal standards, it would provide them an opportunity to demonstrate that those bottom liner, liner systems are in fact protective of human health and the environment. Uh, so this process is called an alternative liner demonstration. Uh, now, again, I've, I've specified here what bottom liners meet the current federal standards, uh, 30 mil geomembrane and uh, two feet of compacted soil with a conductivity less than 10 to the minus seven uh, centimeters per second. Uh, deviate, any liners that deviate from this are considered unlined based on the current rules. So the proposed Part B rule, if it's finalized, may prevent some unlined surface impoundments from being forced to close if they can make a demonstration that their bottom liners are in fact protective. Uh, now EPA would have to review and, and approve each of these demonstrations. Uh, now finally, I just wanna emphasize again that this Part B rule has not yet been finalized. Uh, it could come any day. Uh, JR and I have been eagerly watching and awaiting this. Um, but I think as of, the, uh, uh, as of today, the proposed rule has not yet been finalized. Uh, so next slide. Um, now, this is where I, I believe some sanity has been, has been introduced. Uh, now this is in contrast 
to my previous statement and our previous presentation that referenced the insanity in the geomembrane, uh, this is now titled Sanity in the Geomembrane. Uh, and the specific sanity that I'm referencing relates to this statement from EPA, uh, which is from EPA's proposed Part B rule. Uh, EPA, and I'm just going to read it. Uh, EPA agrees that it is possible for individual impoundments that are not lined with either a composite liner or alternative composite liner, as those terms are defined in the CCR regulations, to still be protective of human health and the environment. Uh, so in acknowledging this, uh, EPA created a process called the Alternative Liner Demonstration Process by which an owner of a surface impoundment with a bottom liner system uh, that is considered unlined based on the federal standards, an opportunity to demonstrate that that bottom liner system is still protective of human health and the environment. Now, specifically, this process must show the following. Uh, it must demonstrate that operation of the coal ash surface impoundment poses no reasonable probability of adverse effects to human health uh, or the environment. Uh, it must demonstrate that the surface impoundment has not and will not result in groundwater concentrations above the groundwater protection standards. And it must demonstrate that the monitoring well network uh, that has been installed at an impoundment is sufficient to detect any potential future releases. Uh, now, as I mentioned earlier, the demonstrations have to be submitted to EPA, uh, and EPA is going to make a determination uh, of whether each bottom liner application meets the requirements of the alternative liner demonstration process. Uh, now, I've provided a link here to the full text of the proposed Part B rule uh, in case anyone wants to read further, um, more so than what you know, the details that I've presented uh, here in this talk. All right, now I want to give a little bit more information on uh, um, this alternative liner demonstration process that EPA laid out. Uh, so there are two, and this is what JR mentioned earlier, there are two primary lines of evidence uh, that are required as part of this demonstration. Uh, first of all, the site hydrogeology needs to be characterized. Uh, in order to grant an approval, EPA has made it clear that a high level of confidence in the hydrogeological characteristics is required. Uh, so we need to understand the soil and the lithological variability. Uh, need to understand if there are any preferential pathways uh, that may be present. Uh, and we need to account for the, the variability in the lithology in the fate and transport uh, calculations and modeling analyses that are performed. Uh, now, the cross-section here is of a uh, CCR surface impoundment that overlies a natural clay liner. Uh, so, so to grant an approval for a site like this, uh, EPA needs to be shown that all the data um, that supports the lateral and vertical extensions of this clay layer and the hydrogeological characteristics of this clay layer. Uh, EPA has made it clear you know, that just one or two borings across the site is not sufficient for this type of demonstration. Uh, and they've also made it clear that a failure to accurately characterize is a sufficient reason to deny an application, uh, regardless of whatever the limited data may show. 
so there is a, there is a high hurdle that they're expecting uh, in order to characterize the subsurface environment. Uh, the second line of evidence is that the owners must characterize the potential for leachate migration through the bottom liner system. Uh, and for this, EPA cited the EPRI probabilistic modeling approach. Uh, now, this is the white paper that I described earlier. Uh, and they describe this as one method that may be used to assess the leachate infiltration through the liner system. Uh, again, as I mentioned, sanity has been reintroduced. Uh, I can only hope that this sanity remains once the final Part B rule uh, is published. All right, onto the next slide. Now, just to take it one step farther, uh, the exact language that EPA used in the Part B rule uh, was that leakage rates from these types of liners might be better captured through predictive modeling that considers the, the range of possible construction quality and leakage scenarios based on empirical performance data similar to the approach outlined by EPRI. Uh, now, EPA did a full critique of our white paper and determined that it was an appropriate framework to model the fate and transport of constituent mass from CCR service impoundments. Uh, now, I've provided a link at the bottom of this slide uh, to where the, the EPRI report, the white paper, can be found. It is publicly available, uh, so it is uh, any anyone can go and, and read, the, read the study and read the results that were presented to EPA. Uh, but I just want to highlight this, that EPA reviewed and, and considered the study that we performed and submitted to them, and then they used it to justify uh, you know, changing their CCR regulations. Uh, based on my own personal experience and my own opinion, this is a really rare occasion uh, where a rule that was devised by an agency, you know, that really lacked logic, that lacked scientific underpinnings, was changed in light of the scientific presentation of the available data. Uh, so I, I really view this as a, as a huge success story. Uh, and once again, at least on this topic, sanity has been returned. Uh, so again, I can only hope that that sanity will remain once the, the final Part B rule is published uh, any day now. And so with that, uh, the next slide, uh, I thank everyone for their attention. I think we have uh, a fair bit of time here that we can uh, uh, hopefully take a few questions. Great, Andy. Thank, thank you so much. We do have a bunch of questions. So here we go. I'll just start at the top and try to work my way down through all of these. Great, JR, I'm glad you're back. Here we go, first one. I believe the CCR rules resulted in more use of geosynthetics for closure of CCR facilities, which is good for the industry. However, it it's created more expenses for the utilities and consumers. If this is not true, please provide your take on this. So maybe we'll talk about both geosynthetics and cost. It's uh, it's interesting. You want me to, to, to kick off, Andy? Yeah, I think this. I think that's uh, um, probably a good one for you. <laughs> so uh, you know, I think that's a that's exactly. I mean, that is a very um, good perspective i mean you know so the the way that um the the federal rule has been presented uh does present in both of those cases there's substantially uh more geosynthetics 
uh, that are going to be used because it's being used to um, retrofit and bring up a standard. So, I mean, that's certainly the case. And in terms of the cost of the industry, um, that absolutely, I believe, is correct as well. There is a considerable cost that's associated with this. Um, I, the, the, the balancing point I would um, offer, and it's, a, it's, you know, it's an unfortunate one, is that the, the, uh, the promulgation of these specific rules were under uh, Rule 257 of the federal code. And that particular set of statutes didn't allow EPA to go through similar cost benefit analysis as they did with the 258 set of rules for municipal solid waste landfills. So as EPA has been balancing these items, that element of cost uh, was not um, permissible to, to bring to the exclusion of the other um, safety um, elements that were brought to bear. And I, I guess just, just to add to one of the things that, that JR said, um, I, I think that's a good, this question is a good point. Um, and, but, you know, one of the, the areas in which, you know, the geomembranes are, are very commonly being used um, are in the, you know, subsequent closure of these pounds. I mean, I, I talked a lot about the bottom liner systems, uh, but the geomembranes are, are being used frequently in the capping of these impoundments. Uh, and while that may have some added costs, the alternative is to excavate the ash and redispose it elsewhere. Uh, and that's a, that's a whole different order of magnitude of costs. Um, so in that, in that respect, the use of geomembranes has, uh, as part of the closure scenarios has been very, you know, very beneficial, I think, to the, you know, to the industry and to utilities. Good point. Yeah. And just if I could weigh on, on that question just a little bit. Right now, the rules seem to focus on compacted soil slash compacted clay. Some states allow replacement or partial replacement of the compacted soil liner with a geosynthetic clay liner, which is basically a small bentonite blanket. Yeah. Is there any consideration moving forward of partially replacing some of the compacted soil liner or clay liner with a GCL? much less cost. I guess the question would be, for the, would that be for the final cover construction as Andy uh, suggested that that's being built upon or for the bottom liner component? Uh, I, I see it in both, mm -hmm. but it, it just, I mean, that's how it's being used in the MSW uh, title 258, but so I, I haven't seen it yet in CCR. Just to, to add, uh, at least on the on the bottom liner component of it. So the uh, the current federal rules have a provision that um, you know the federal standards are a 30 mil geomembrane and a you know and two feet of a compacted soil that's 10 to the minus seven. Uh, or there is a uh, there's a provision for an alternative composite liner. And for that alternative composite liner, there is some flexibility on that two feet of underlying soil. So if you can demonstrate that uh, there is another uh, layer uh, underneath the, the geomembrane uh, that is protective and meets the same standards of the two feet of soil at 10 to the minus seven, then that is, a, that is an option that's allowed. Um, I will say, Tim, for the, the modeling that, uh, that I did, we did look at a GCL um, you know, a composite, a, a geomembrane with a GCL layer, um, they obviously perform 
very well. I think that was I think that was probably the the single best performing bottom liner system that we looked at. Yep. Yep. Okay. Next question, guys. Um, can you define in layman's terms what is meant by closure? I'll, I'll take a run at it, Andy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is good. So you know, closure is you know, in layman's terms, it's the it's the act of of a disposal unit going from operating and being open to the environment to securing it for the long term and having uh, design and engineered standards for what that long term uh, disposition is as well as any of the type of uh, monitoring or any other types of um, performance that has to be monitored during a post-closure care period. For the, um, you know, in the federal rule, there were two types of closure that were offered up. One was a closure by removal, which was a physical removal of the CCR and contamination. And then there was, um, at, in order to certify that closure, there was the need to also meet groundwater protection standards. And that was because post-closure care wasn't anticipated for a closure by removal. And so the, the um, item, the other option I brought up was EPA realizes that in order to be able to allow individuals to go out and remove materials, especially if they're in unlined circumstances, they want to incentivize people to put those within a geomembrane-lined or um, other type of containment that can be demonstrated to be protective for the long term. So uh, that. That's the closure for the um, closure by removal. For a landfill, it would be conventionally putting that final cover over it and having monitoring associated with it. And just just to add one thing to that, it's um, it's a little a little uh, a little bit you know kind of beyond the question, but uh, you know prior to this proposed Part B rule, um, and this was as a result of the 2018 DC Circuit ruling. Uh, you know, these uh, facilities that are unlined uh, are required to close. And, you know, JR just described what it means to close. But so these unlined facilities are required to close, uh, you know, to stop operating and to close, regardless of whether there's been any releases from those facilities or whether there's been any impacts to groundwater as a result of those facilities. Uh, so it's a pretty high standard. And that's why this alternative process uh, that EPA has laid out uh, is just so important. Great. Okay, next, is consumer energy or any other utility you know pursuing CCR impoundments with an alternative closure? Oh, if that's yes, a good question. Yeah, if yes, do you know what these alternative closures consist of? And this, this sort of gets back to my GCL question. That is a really good question. So for um, the alternative closure, which was a longer period of time uh, to allow for the retrofit, uh, for consumers energy specifically, all of our unlined surface impoundments, so that would be any surface impoundment that did not have the composite associated with it, consumers committed to already closing those facilities. Um, I would mention that we do have um, a impoundment that uh, does continue to operate. It's actually a, a double line, double composite system. So it has the GCL that you're referencing that's, um, that is comprised in the leachate collection system component of that um, empowerment. So uh, that, that's the status for consumers energy. Um, I'm, I'm gonna be honest and say, um, since the, uh, the start of those notifications, which was 
uh, September 30th. What I do know is EPA has a website that you can go to to see those alternative closure demonstrations. Um, I do uh, as I do not have that website on hand, but I can provide it as part of the follow-up podcast, and you'll be able to go out there and actually see the demonstrations that um, are being submitted to EPA. Great, and I'll get to the podcast in, in just a second, Jr. Okay, sure. next is um, does does this updated closure e- e- EPA rule making also apply to other coal facilities such as coal waste? and coal slurry impoundments. I, I could take that one too, Andy. Um, you know, the way that the coal, that, that the um, the rule specifically applies is that you uh, the standards apply to coal that is managed or disposed at a site of coal-fired generation. And there's an NAICS code that's associated with that. What's really interesting is when you look at the part A component, and uh, specifically uh, the legacy surface impoundment component of, of the response in the pre-publication, they, they make reference to that NAICS code again. So either an active site of generation or an inactive site of generation, but EPA also, at least within a couple of sentences, indicates that that statement is not a limiting statement, but at least a um, informative statement. So. Um, the places where these standards are going to most apply is at generating sites, either uh, current or uh, previous generating sites. But EPA does not uh, prevent the ability to apply standards to other units that are out there, which they haven't identified, to be honest. So that's that's the primary point of focus for these. Yep. Okay, Andy, you good with that? Okay. I'm good. That's, I I can't say it any better than Jr. <laughs> okay. Next one is. Uh, why is separation to the saturated zone important and needed? And I'll let you guys handle that one. I'll let you go with that one, Andy. <laughs> okay. He's like, yeah. Uh, well, it's 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 important to um, you know, to to understand what's going on in the saturated zone as a result of these impoundments because it uh, um, it it allows you know it allows us to to talk to EPA in their own language you know which is you know what what is protective of of human health and the environment uh, and you know that is the RECRA standard uh, and so if you can demonstrate um, you know what is what is the amount of mass and what is the flux that's coming through you know a liner system uh, and impacting groundwater. It, allow, it allows us to kind of, you know, to, to put those results in context that EPA understands, and then, you know, an EPA actually uses that type of language to, to create regulations. Uh, so, you know, so, you know, determining what those impacts or what those potential impacts are in the saturated zone, I think was really important in order to, you know, to get EPA's ear onto what the potential impacts of these different liner systems could be. Yep. And of course, mobility is much greater in the saturated zone than, of course, the vados or unsaturated zone. But okay, That's next right. is, is um, do do the CCR rules apply to facilities that were closed before the CCR rules promulgated? That's a great question. It's uh, you know, so uh, the federal rule originally set a uh, effective date of uh, October. Well, they initially said October 14th, but that was amended amended to October 17th of 2015. And they said any facility that's uh, operational as of this date forward 
is uh, subject to these rules. Uh, if you're a landfill um, and you were inactive at the time, EPA has been clear that um, the rule does not uh, apply to the inactive landfills or closed landfills. And in the case of surface impoundments, the challenge has been the idea of inactive surface impoundment because of the risk that a uh, that that impoundment had without any other standards that then applied. And so EPA and the courts are wrestling with how, you know, how do you retroactively apply standard of care for those types of units that would have been constructed and operated before the current standards have been published. And so uh, getting to the answer, EPA's um, legacy impoundment uh, publication that I mentioned, which is only pre-publication as of right now, it has not been uh, published in the Federal Register. We expect that to be any day now. Uh, once that's published as an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, they're seeking feedback from stakeholders. So anybody on this uh, that's listening to this, you have the opportunity to be part of the process to speak to what that looks like. So I think they do intend to um, provide regulation. They're not clear about which standards they're going to apply. Okay, uh, we have about one minute. Um, so I'm gonna try this last, one more question. There are a bunch more. Okay. Uh, and I'll talk about the podcast. So if you have to do this in one minute. Is EPA okay. expecting to review alternative liner evaluations? The CCR rule has required publication of documents, but EPA hands, has been hands off and the CCR rule relied on lawsuits for and enforcement. Good question. Uh, the, the, the very short answer is, uh, Tim, is yes. They've been very clear that, um, you know, for all the alternative uh, closure, work plans are being submitted with these alternative liners, it's a demonstration and they do fully intend to um, review those. And I do believe they'll make those posted to a website so that there's a uh, public involvement with that. Great. All right, JR, can you go to the next slide? Yeah, sure. Wrap up. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for attending. There's still a number of questions coming in. We will conduct a follow-up podcast with JR and Andy on Thursday, October 15th. So please send any additional questions via the webinar survey that you, you will be sent shortly after the webinar. And JR and Andy will address these additional questions and the ones that I did not get to today in the podcast. Before we end, um, there's Andy's uh, and JR's contact information on the screen, mine and Jen Miller's as well, if you have questions or want additional information. JR, the next screen. Um, the next webinar is by Professor Kerry Rowe of Queen's University. He's going to give his 2020 Mercer lecture on geosynthetics for construction on soft foundations. And then our November webinar is on geosynthetics and mining applications. So please, I hope you will attend. Last slide is the FGI website. I hope you'll visit the FGI website. There's a lot of information, including the prior webinars, um, calculators for pond leakage, which uh, JR and Andy talked about today. And of course, the listing of other podcasts as well. So JR and Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Another great webinar. And everybody, thank you for attending. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks. See ya. <laughs>